Hey everybody, super important episode, extra long, I think this is the longest here we are podcast episode that there's ever been. Um, you know, this this is important stuff. Uh, this is a really critical time. I think people got a little lax about what's going on and we know more now. I think it's time to start informing ourselves a little bit better. So I hope that you find this useful. And don't forget, you can check it out on YouTube. If you want to have, if you have any questions, comments of your own, I'll have other guests talking about the subject coming up. We'll be putting some highlights to make it nice and digestible, shareable little links so you can send it around to people that you might know. These are incredibly complicated subjects to articulate, so we're trying to make it easy for you to do that, to get the word out there, to have not just interesting conversations, but important conversations. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I had such a terrific time with Jessica Brinkman. Thank you, Jessica, so much for your time. You're awesome, and you guys are awesome for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have an awesome guest, and I already know she's awesome because I already interviewed her, but you guys didn't get to see or hear her because I didn't download the file. However, she did, and we could have put it out, but classic academic, uh, after a fantastic interview... She was like, can we do it again? I don't know if I... <laughs> You're every academic I've ever talked to, by the, uh, by the way. It's what I it's what I like about... It's, I think it's one of my big bonds that I have with academics is the um, pathological self-doubt. That, oh, that, yeah. That I mean, I listened to that thing. I listened to it afterwards twice. And I sat down... Oh, and well, it. don't do like, that. Like, yeah, well, right afterwards. Right afterwards. <laughs> After we ended the interview, I was like, okay, I need to listen to this. I really want to make sure that I've got this right. right? And then I sent you corrections. I was like, nope, this is wrong. Oh, well, I look forward to all the corrections this time. <laughs> Jessica Brinkworth is our guest. Jessica, why don't you introduce yourself to the good people at home? Oh, yeah. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So uh, my name is Jessica Brinkworth. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I study the evolution of the human immune system. I mainly focus on why some people get sick and some people don't, um, and also why some animals get sick and other animals don't, uh, with a specific interest in severe infections. And I've spent an awful lot of time asking why certain people progress to, say, sepsis, for example, when they get uh, pneumonia and other people don't. So uh, that's, that's what I do. A lot of my research is, involves probing cells with a fancy plastic stick, basically, and making them respond to terrible things like plague or toxoplasma, and even more mundane things like Staphylococcus aureus. So, and now I'm, I'm neck deep in COVID. So what, what was that last one that you said before COVID? The... Oh, sta sorry, Staphylococcus aureus? Yeah. And E. coli. Yeah, so these are, so Staph lives on you. Um, e. coli does too. 
most of the things that kill people every year live on them. So like constitutively live on them and then take advantage of a, of a niche opening up when another infection happens. So uh, staph is one of the leading killers worldwide. The number one thing that kills people in a normal non-pandemic year is uh, lower respiratory infections. And the vast majority of those are caused by outside of influenza are caused by things that live in the lungs anyway. So, um, so the things that kill you tend to be the things that live with you. Uh, you know, I was I was looking at the um, causes of death recently, and it looks like, I mean, it looks like COVID's on track to beat out the regular year's lower respiratory rates. Yeah, if it no, it's, it's done. Un- that 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 was passed. I mean, I feel like that that trajectory was pretty as well established. Because like, it's, yeah. Because what it's like two hundred thousand or something like that. In I the think, U in the U.S. right now, it's two hundred thousand. Yeah. 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 Uh, so on a bad flu year, it's sixty thousand, and we passed May eighth is uh, the di- the last time that I checked and saw that we had passed it. That, okay. I remember that date very specifically because I had to give a presentation on COVID that morning, and I was looking up like additional the the, the next day's stats because that's how quickly things move. And we surpassed it. Uh, we were getting like 20, at the beginning of May, we had something like 20,000 cases a week that were being hmm. detected. Yeah. So, and that's, um, and that's, I think that's like above, if I remember right, that's maybe above. So that's above accidents, which oh, I yeah. think is just below it. And then, uh, but above the lower respiratory, I believe is heart attacks and cancer. Uh, yeah. So- then. 70% of the population every year in the United States dies of coronary heart disease or something related. So you can broadly throw it into cerebrovascular diseases. And then about 20% from a broad group of cancers. And then after that, it's infectious disease. And after that, it's accident. all other cause mortality. Everything else is this really small percentage. Now, when it comes to something like, because everyone's, um, not everyone, um, some some of the people that want to see what they want to see in mm. the <laughs> in the in the num- it is amazing how much I mean you have to think how much do I do this myself all of the time of like see the narrative that I want to see I yeah. I had a a good example of this is I kind of I made a post about how I w- I wish I could vaccinate myself against conspiracy theorists. And, um, and I, I, I took this page from this, um, I was just reading about, uh, uh, this book, the knowledge illusion. And it's, um, uh, much about the kind of, um, the Dunning Kruger effect Oh yeah, and and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and like the community of uh, a community of knowledge, like uh, how much, how much we know kind of depends on our network of people and I'll anyway one of the things was was addressing some of the misunderstandings that people have and I posted on my Instagram story this page that was talking about how they wanted to see if they could message you know the facts about vaccines causing autism if they could if you know the CDC and information debunking that what could you do to prime experimental groups to b- accept that knowledge? And they tried, um, you know, like a, a powerful um, personal story. 
they showed images of kids with measles and like some other prime uh, like like that, and it actually made it worse. Like more people believed in uh, that vaccines cause autism after seeing pictures of kids with with, with that, measles. With, wow! And, and uh, it was a study. I, I I'm sure I could pull it. That that plays exactly to the opposite of some of the information that we had when I was working for Health Canada. So I, to to explain, before I was an academic, before I did my PhD, I worked as a policy analyst for Health Canada and I worked in risk management um, at the beginning, uh, which happened to coincide with SARS. Um, And then I worked in, I worked in biologic drug policy and and vaccines are a biologic drug. Uh, and the information that we had at the time that was largely coming out of the section of the department that handled controlled substances like tobacco was that if you showed a personal story of someone who was dying of cancer or who had to have a tracheotomy or, or things like that, that, that that response, the response that was triggered in the audience, at least in the focus groups, was profoundly like, wow, that's really awful. And one of the reasons why, at least in Canada, the warnings on cigarette packages yeah. became big and involved that, things I th- like... I thought about this when I read this. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Involved things like rotting teeth. That was the one that, of all those images, like the <laughs> yeah, yeah. erectile dysfunction and like all these other things that they put on these packages, the one that really like hit people gutturally was rotting teeth, right? Because A, repulsed them. You and can B, see it they thought about themselves, right? And so when you're hearing these stories, these focus groups were indicating that like, oh, well, I thought about, uh, they had deep empathy for this person and then they thought about themselves. Yeah. So, um, but I think that that is probably, like everybody knows that tobacco has these negative ramifications, right? That's that's accepted. I haven't seen a tobacco truther. I've seen people fighting tobacco bans, but yeah. I've never seen anyone who is fighting those bans saying things like, well, it doesn't kill you, right? Like that's, that it, that's accepted. That's, you know, that's right. cool. I think uh, instead with vaccines, we're looking at like a distrust in source, right? Like when it comes, I suspect that that's a big part of it. Like it doesn't matter if the government shows you that, you know, here, these kids have measles. Look how awful this is. Look at these people that have died and, and things like that. For someone, I think, who's already in a position of, of believing vaccines are bad, then, you know, you're just providing more evidence because you're the authority and I don't trust the authority. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened. That's a very, yeah, I think you're spot on because at least in okay. this one little case which which most people really responded positively to my post where i kind of wrote this whole thing about like i think we should absolutely be skeptical of medicine and science and science isn't perfect and all of that and it makes it that much harder to be skeptical when there's conspiracy theorists saying lizard people are trying to track us with vaccine <laughs> and and, and, and that, people uh, trying to, that was awesome uh, i mean that's that's what's going around out there uh I, I don't know if you are how so, deep you've gotten into the conspiracy worlds, but it's... Right, uh, I've spent most of my time, I guess, fairly superficially <laughs> arguing about autism, right? And, yeah, and that's... Autism. Well, that's the big... That's the run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, yeah. And then, and then next level is, like, Bill Gates planned this so he could put microchips in us to track us um, yeah, with think, vaccines, <laughs> which is, like... So, there's at, so much wrong with that. 
Yeah, well, it's the people like look up those stories and read it on their phone, uh, like and then, right. then enter in their email and social security numbers, so they'll get more <laughs> stories like that. Um, but but it, what was interesting, and this was um, Brendan Nahan, a, a political scientist at Dartmouth, ran this study. It was just one study. I'm not saying that whatever it was, what it was. But yeah, it says. Um, uh, in fact, some of the information backfired after seeing um, images of six, uh, sick children, parents expressed an increased belief in vaccine autism connection. And after reading the emotional story, parents were more likely to believe in uh, serious vaccine side effects. Fantastic book, by the way. But, um, but anyway, this person who was kind of like giving me some, uh, one was clearly like reading what he wanted to read in my post uh and arguing with me then like got on the story and was like see uh, how can we trust scientists when this is the kind of stuff they're doing they're trying to scare people into right. believing i was like no you don't understand what the yeah, motivation yeah. of that test you don't know what that test was about or what it was saying like Wait, would it would it help if i explained <laughs> just how Compared to the years I've spent, like, gigging adjunct lecturing for, like, very little money in New York City, and the years I spent in school not earning retirement savings, that the payoff once you are running your own lab is actually kind of low. Like, I'm earning <laughs> below what I was earning before I, I started my PhD now. And that's, that's typical, and that's not to complain about my salary. I'm just saying that, like, there's no... The, the benefit for me anyway, and I think a lot of other people feel the same way, is the knowledge, right? The benefit is like, I'm going to learn this thing and maybe it contributes to a pile of things that help us move something forward. For me, an infectious disease, it, the thi for me, the thing has always been, I want to stop this bad thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and it's one thing to be involved in vaccine research and, and those tend to be the people that, that get an awful lot of attention when there's, when there's a pandemic, for example. Right. Uh, and they're working ridiculous hours. I mean, like if I were to tell you my hours working at this is they're pretty insane. Like I work not, it's not unusual for me to work, you know, an 80 hour work week. And I'm doing it now at home, getting up at like 3 a.m. Uh, well, I'm glad people, uh, I'm yeah. glad I started doing videos so people can see the ivy, uh, ivory tower yeah. that you have. <laughs> <that> <laughs> my wallpaper removing device and yeah, like, like two where, yoga mats. Where, where are you hiding from your family right now to, to yeah, do this interview? running around somewhere. Oh, no what, what is this room? A storage room or something? Well, it was sold to us as a bedroom, but it has the furnace in it. So it is absolutely not a bedroom. It's uh, a carbon monoxide hazard. So we use it as a craft room. Uh, like, so it, it's where I, I work in here much of the time right now, but before then it was like a place for my kids to like throw their pictures. It's not an organized room in any way. Yeah. But so you just got the email from Bill Gates saying, if you ever got to do media with the, uh, at all, make sure and make your mansion look yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I'm not <laughs> to have my champagne out on the table. I mean, to, be, to be clear, I think like there's no benefit. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. 
Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. It's not like I'm working for a large pharmaceutical company. And even the people that are working within pharmaceutical companies have a very different approach to this too, right? So like for every agent that's, for every set, for every like agent that makes it to market, for every drug that makes it to market, there's something like 700 compounds that have been screened in advance. The, the amount of time and money that goes into just finding something um, especially in experimental science where like there's no result, no results guaranteed. And if you don't get a result, you don't know if it's because the experiment didn't work or if you did something wrong, or if really the thing that you were testing is, was supposed to produce no result. Like, so it, it's such a, I would say that like the healthiest thing I learned over the course of trying to complete a dissertation was that experimental work is like 95% failure. Mm. And so you have to very, very quickly adapt to failing, like being used to getting up every single day, working a long day, and then not getting anything out of it. We have experiments that run, like for, so for a year, I got up every single morning for experiments that were taking weeks to run, and every single one of them failed. Mm. Every single one failed. Same experiment over and over again, slightly different modifications every single one failed wow so you should be you should be a comedian way less work and you still get all the same failure all the same failure. (laughs) (laughs) but i mean that's that's the thing i guess it's just that like the income is fair it's it's nice income i'm i'm happy but um it's not glorious right it's it's public servant level income and uh so i'm not popping bottles of champagne and the work hours which, by the way, champagne's it. not that expensive. No, that's true, but I, I'm absolutely not popping it anyway because I just have the cash to buy it. But like, it's, it's just one of these things. If you work, you work single-mindedly to do this thing. So the, so I would say the vast yeah. majority of people that are working to do it are working honestly, right? They're working from an honest, honest interest. You have to be passionate about it anyway. Yeah. But, but minimally because otherwise it's really hard to get up and do it in the morning but there are bad actors so to be clear there there have been bad actors and uh, the the number one most dangerous bad actor that i can think of is andrew wakefield right? who's the uh, source of this exact problem that we're talking about who who is that so andrew wakefield was the um was the investigator that first published a paper connecting measles infections to autism Ah. And that paper in the first year was um, all the other co-authors pulled themselves off of it. And then, uh, so that was published, I want to say in 89 or 92. It's, it's around the early 90s. Um, and then eventually the paper was pulled entirely. And he, I believe now is unlicensed. And the reason why isn't because this paper connected a measles infection to autism. Uh, it's because to get the paper completed, he went to a child's birthday party and sampled kids for it without consent. Oh, wow. patently against the law. So um, that's the first thing. And then his history with this, because it was a controversial paper when it came out anyway, not because he didn't get consent. Um, That was discovered in the course of the, the investigations into him. But... Uh, because when 
the paper was refuted. How, how did I? How did I guess that he had books that he was peddling? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a big deal guy. Uh, when it was refuted, the target changed. So that the narrative around this is continually changed. So at one point it was like, well, it's not the infection, it's the vaccine. It's uh. not the vaccine, it's the preservatives in the vaccine. It's not that it's, and it just, the target keeps moving. And I think what, what upsets me the most about this is that it's had this massive international fallout. Mm -hmm. I don't know what his motivations were other than at least at the beginning to initially publish. Um, but it takes advantage of people who are actually really struggling. You know, like yeah. that's the saddest thing about it. It takes advantage of people that are really struggling, who really want answers, who really want to protect their kids, who feel guilty that their that their children have a problem. And so, yeah. you know, or, you know, are that their route is going to be, you know, through life is going to be atypical. Yeah. Not to problematize autism. I mean, it's got it's such a big spectrum disease. There's a many disease uh, disorder. There's many different ways of thinking about it. But, it's probably uh, not something a parent would wish for. I don't know. Uh, I think the good way to think about it is is maybe, at least for some people, one of my friends described it to me like this, which is that it's here, it exists, mm -hmm. it's an atypical path, and she is a a kid who is who is really far on the on the spectrum um and so you know they have a lot of a lot of challenges that are, are different than you know what i have to go through with my kids every day hmm. but um but in any case so i'm not an autism specialist. yeah no i i I, I, I can get a hold of <laughs> autism people no problem yeah. <laughs> i i've had them on before um but uh but but, but more more kind of in line what with um what we're saying because this isn't like i'm not a fan of big pharma i i have uh i have a show that um uh it, you know i often have advocated for um more psychedelic research and some of the kind of things that went into the um uh the scheduling system that that uh, we're we're fairly corrupt and what like i the world I, i'm not naive enough to think that the world is free of corruption and and everything oh, else is yeah it's no, just pharmaceutical companies are not benevolent creatures right no. they're they're a creature of a corporate world so they uh how did how is it put in the book corporation they describe corporations as sociopathic yeah you remember that um, yeah, I think I saw the documentary. Yeah, um, I think I cheated too because it's a really big book. Sorry, not to say that watching yeah. a doc is like cheating, but um, but yeah, I mean they have they're motivated by very different things. If you're a publicly shared company, you're motivated by by maintaining the um, the confidence of your shareholders, right, and maintaining a maintaining market and getting return on investment. You're not motivated necessarily by like people suffering, if that were the case, there wouldn't be orphan drug legislation to ensure that drugs for Parkinson's, for example, get produced, right? Yeah. Like the government has to invest to ensure that those things make it to market. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, because I, cause I kind of looked at my understanding was that um, kind of 
probably for the reasons that you said vaccines don't seem terrible like i i'm actually i'm bipolar i'm supposed to if i go to a psychiatrist i'm supposed to be on mood stabilizers i don't uh, i don't trust them plus it's fun to tell people that i'm supposed to be on meds and i'm not that, uh, that's always a that's always a good vibe to have a conversation that's with a good a intro stranger um but uh, uh but i you know, I've had I've had people that research depression um, that are skeptical about antidepressants, and and that's you know talking about a pill that you give someone every day that is like really seemingly very big money that is potentially addictive and everything. It just seems like quite a bit more motivation than a vaccine that's preventative and potentially is stopping. Um, you know, further treatments of more expensive and therefore maybe profitable things. Right, it, yeah, I suppose, right? It's no Lipitor. I mean, right. So, or, or Viagra. For, I mean, if you want to make money, get get into the erection business. That's Right, yeah, yeah. So I think what, but, but a couple of things, right? So, yeah. so there are people who own patents and then there's generics. So when something becomes uh, available for what they call subsequent entry, which is when a drug um, that has been approved is now the patent's open and uh, other people can produce it and produce it under its like proper name as opposed to its fancy marketing name. Um, so, you know, the, there's, there's things like that, right? So certain, certain drugs, so for example, a lot of the antidepressants that have been around for like 40 years are on, or it's subsequent entry now, right? Like you go to buy Effexor or something or Lexapro or, or something like that. Those drugs are available in generic forms and the original company sees no profit from that, right? That's something that generics are seeing specifically. But that said, with flu vaccinations, for example, um, there's an awful lot in most countries, there's an awful lot that goes into price controlling. Mm. A lot, an awful lot of effort goes into controlling the prices of drugs that are broadly seen as being needed on the market. And like in, in Canada, drug prices get capped. That's part of the legislation. You can't come in and say this drug is going to be $500, $600 if reasonably we say that it has to be less. Mm -hmm. So there's this active federal hand that goes around limiting what you can charge someone for, especially for life-saving drugs. Like that's just, you know, you can't, this problem that we have here that started with Turing around um, a drug for toxoplasma or the stuff around insulin, that's not happening in a lot of other nations. And that's because there's no drug cap legislation here. Didn't that one guy go to jail a few years ago? That pharma oh, yeah, bro. Shakali. Uh, I, I, I don't expect last you to remember. Name he did. He went to prison though, not for. Uh, I think he originally went. He was up on a couple different charges. I believe he went in for trying to get a piece of Hillary Clinton's hair, or that was coincident to him trying to with lying to investors in a scam before Turing. One of the two. He was up for a bunch of charges. The guy has some issues. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Professionally, he has some problems. Um, but to, just to say really fast, I mean, around yeah. um, vaccination, vaccination could be seen as bread and butter for a corporation, but there's lots and lots of producers. And the way that, say, the flu vaccine works is, and vaccines, a number of vaccines work this way, is that uh, 
federal governments put a bid out around the world. They put a bid out and say, like, here's what we're willing to pay for this year's vaccines. And then companies compete for the bid. And then a company's chosen and they produce the vast majority of that vaccine for that nation. And in the flu, um, in the flu vaccine market, what this means is that generally lots and lots of different companies make the flu vaccine. Um, and they all make a vaccine based on the same flu strains targeting the same, um, what do you call them? Antigens, like the same protein structures on the outside of the, the flu virus. Mm. But the equipment you make a vaccine in is the vaccine because what you, when you make a vaccine, you have to use living things and you use components from living things. So one vaccine that's made by one company in one building is not the same as that vaccine being made even by that same company in another building because every single thing you do informs the biology of the things that are going to make the vaccine. So, um, so because of that, every single vaccine that every country gets is a fundamentally different vaccine, even if it's by the same manufacturer. And so uh, what happens after the vaccines are all bought up is that there's this post-market trading so that everybody ensures that they've got a whole bunch of different types of the same flu vaccine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, none of that benefits the the companies directly right that's not this post-market trading and selling um that's they're not seeing profit on that either so that's not to say that they're benevolent but it's that it's kind of complicated and so it's there's a big difference between pushing antidepressants or i don't know lipitor or whatever drug you know mm-hmm. an anti-acne drug or something at a population and um developing a, a vaccine that's broadly needed internationally every year and mm. is traded in this way. I can't think of very many other drugs that are traded that way. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So, so that's, you know, uh, I, I wanted to address it because the, it does seem like that's becoming such a popular narrative. And, and I, I never, I've always had friends that were conspiracy theorists and for much of my life, I thought that they were uh, outliers and and now it's becoming um, more and more popular. So I kind of want to address that. But I think that the average person has legitimate concerns of being uh, of one life is very complicated and that's a lot to learn and you're giving your child something and 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 I mean, vaccines and any other medicine aren't risk-free right like yeah. how how do we it, with with something like um with a covid vaccine which it, it, you know i'm not talking about the people that are like oh vaccine they they make vaccines to intentionally poison us to uh, poison us to lower the world population or or oh, to right. microchip us or whatever that that's people that are like off the deep end which if that were the case but I'm like what takes those, so long to make a poison like why isn't it why isn't it here right now like right. poisons are super easy to make I mean but those ideas are based to a certain extent in some truth right I mean this is the reason why. A Handmaid's Tale, when it came out, struck people so profoundly was that that whole book, right, was based on individual things that had happened across time. Mm -hmm. It's just that in A Handmaid's Tale, they're all happening all at once. So, Mm. um, I didn't watch the show, it was very good stuff and and stuff before World War II, like real historical events that all get mashed up into one story. And so, like, there have been cases where 
companies have gone to India under the, you know, with cooperating with an NGO and have, you know, sterilized people mm-hmm. without what's without possibly consent. Mm-hmm. So there, there's been things like that. There's reasons to, you know, distrust. There's lots of reasons to distrust, you know, corporations. Bhopal is a really good example yeah. of, of something that happened where, you know, they could have, they, that company could have given information about what gas they were like unleashed accidentally on so many hundreds of thousands of people and they wouldn't do it and lots and lots of people died. There's lots of reasons to not trust big corporations. Right? Yeah. Like, we all watched Chernobyl recently too. There's reasons right. that governments um, cover things, cover things. I mean, that does, <laughs> that, it definitely yeah. doesn't help like when, when you do find something that is effective and safe, uh, all of that history does. Right. Like, look, we've had some light sterilization in the past. Yeah, sure. <laughs> things, we, man, we've like, moved past you can trust, that. Right. And there is a difference between <laughs> Union Carbide and Pfizer. Like these are two, you know, these are different, different aims, different things, different companies. And I, I want to believe that most companies are not releasing massive amounts of poisonous gas on people and not saying anything about it. Right. Like I, I, I think that, but those, those events are so profound. Like that's a huge event in my childhood. I remember that like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, as, as a kid, I just thought that was terrible. It doesn't help that Chernobyl happened not all that long afterwards yeah. either uh, with the same kind of like literal actual conspiracies. Right. And I think that a lot of this doubt is based in, in that, but there are ways to front run against it. Mm. And we, I mean, when I was working in government, we knew that there was a growing body of people. There are people I worked with that were vaccine conspiracists. And so, you know, there was, from my perspective, not a whole lot of effective public messaging early. Like this is something that we could have gotten kind of ahead of in the Mm. nineties, you know, um, and we didn't, and this is where this is where we are. Uh, well, the, you take something like Chernobyl, where where it, it is a it's a difference to say like mistakes were covered up horribly and perpetuated and led to more mistakes, and that like it was their intent to melt the place down in the first place to cause this and that, and you know those are two different things. But that but that's even more important to be aware of when we have a. I mean, from my view of looking at thing, I think you know, when I put it out there to people, what they wanted to hear about a common question I got is how much concern is there about rushing this thing? There's, we have a global pandemic. Things are shut down. People are losing their jobs. They're losing their potentially their homes, their businesses, their dreams. There's so much pressure and many people would take the, take whatever vaccine is out there. What the, how, how much do we have to be concerned more than your usual, say, like flu shot or something like that, right. that that things are are going to be rushed and there's going to be mistakes made. I think the biggest concern around this is probably efficacy. So vaccines generally, um, most of the vaccines that we get are either some version of a, a valent vaccine where it's targeting like a very particular protein or, or motif on Could- a... Sorry, could, go you, ahead. could you maybe just do some 101 how a vaccine actually works? Yes. So a vaccine, you can have, I'm just going to call them live and dead. So you can have a live vaccine or a dead vaccine. Um, 
This is for the traditional vaccinations that you guys get all the time. I'm not talking about like gene therapies or, or things like that. That's that's different. And you could technically use the same term for them. So uh, for the regular run of the mill stuff that you get on the schedule, the options are live or dead. Um, a live vaccine is what we refer to as generally as live attenuated. That means that the pathogen is alive and it's in there, but it's been bred to be either less virulent, like not going to hurt you or less likely to hurt you or not going to hurt you at all, avirulent. Um, and so an example of that would be polio. Polio vaccine is a live vaccine, or it's traditionally been a live vaccine. Uh, and then we have other ones that we refer to as valent vaccines. And these are vaccines that have one or some combination of um, molecules that have come from a pathogen. And then both of them after that, have usually some, so there's a lot of water, <laughs> to be clear, there's a lot of water that's usually involved. And then um, they have usually some other uh, molecule that's in there that they know stimulates an immune response. So it's one thing to send, a, a, say, polio virus into someone, and it's another thing for your immune system to see it. Most of the most dangerous pathogens are really good escape artists. They've come up with all kinds of mechanisms that upon entry into your body, they start fooling and tricking the immune system. So one thing that is an important component for a lot of vaccines is a set of molecules that you know for sure the immune system's going to see. So they'll come to the location and, oh my God, look, there's this other thing here too. Um, that's often something called lipopolysaccharide that comes from the outside of uh, certain types of bacteria. But it can be, there's chemicals that do it too. So there's, there's a number of like just little chemical structures that people have made. And then you need to preserve it if it's a batch vaccine. So there'll be, there's a variety of different tiny preservatives that are used. They're all pretty safe. And then um, you need to stabilize it. So that's separate. And uh, we stabilize vaccines with a broad range of products called excipients. And excipients are often things like albumin. So you would be really familiar with albumin uh, if you eat eggs in the morning because the white of the egg is largely albumin. What mm -hmm. albumin does in, in a body generally is that it keeps things in, keeps liquid things in whatever's holding the liquid thing. So in your body right now, your blood is loaded with albumin and its main job is to keep your blood from seeping out of your arteries and veins. Gosh, I and love this stuff. <laughs> it's the best stuff. Um, so albumin is uh, a commonly used excipient in vaccines. It's used for stabilizing and it's usually human serum albumin. So it's collected from blood donations often. And uh, so that's another story, but to keep, to keep most blood drive like organisms afloat. So like the Red Cross and um, any number of other companies you have to sell off some of your product because uh, most of it's going to spoil. And the longest that any given sort of blood component lasts that can still be donated to somebody is about 45 days before whatever nascent bacteria was picked up in the process, before it either dies or whatever bacteria was in there spoils it. So, um, wow. so a lot of it has to be sold and it's sold. Albumin is a big part of that. It's sold in massive batches, like gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. And then it's, purified, tested, and then it's a your vaccine. Hmm. Uh, do you, uh, <laughs> so depending on your area, is that, uh, I mean, how does it all get to, because 
I I'd be so worried. I didn't realize blood could just go rotten. <laughs> like like is oh that, yeah, no, it is that, uh, how how do you know you're getting fresh blood? There's just a they well, put there's, a little there's regulations around and... how long it can last. So <laughs> like the the United the United States government under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act has very explicit regulations for cells, tissues, and organs for how long that they can be held. Hmm. Um, what I was talking about was like fractionated, and I think red blood cells are the things that are kept the longest. Hmm. I, like when I, I buy, I've had to for research, buy donated blood. Um, and I get the leftovers that aren't useful to anybody. The aftermarket stuff. <laughs> the aftermarket stuff. I get like the, what's the, what's the. Bargain blood. I get the imperfect, right? Like the, exactly. Like the, the bruised, the bruised uh, zucchini kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Like at the grocery yeah. store when they have all of the meat going bad. You can, yeah, uh, you yeah. Get I get the bargain based and stuff. The stuff that they can't put into somebody. <laughs> um, so uh, just because it's sitting too long or in some cases I can pay more and get something that might have been but in most cases I just get the, the bargain basement stuff that's not you know anyway uh, in those cases um, it's 24 hours old by the time I get it oh, 24 well, to 36 depending because there's overnight shipping so 36 hours maybe I, well if the if the whole um, uh work area behind you wasn't convincing enough that scientists don't have it made you're working with bargain basement, bargain basement blood. blood yeah it's true <laughs> um uh, so i mean how uh, a couple things hmm. all right i had like five questions come up in that whole thing so um one when you were talking about how kind of sneaky modern pathogens are oh, yeah. and and you you study the the evolution of the human immune system do you think that any of the kind of sneakiness of the pathogens that take off have to do with just um you know humans evolved to be these fantastic tool makers we've stumbled upon this science stuff and germ theory and sterilization and and we've we've done things to that do outwit a fair number of of viruses and diseases and perhaps that's um that's changed kind of the the regular evolutionary arms race between um between host and and well yeah, so i think so certainly the discovery of antibiotics has changed the evolutionary arms race between us and an awful lot of bacteria, right? And that bacteria are gaming a system that we, we happened upon that they've been evolving for billions of years. Mm -hmm. And we found it and we're like, great, we're going to apply antibiotics now. And that's going to solve a lot of our problems. And we started applying them before we knew what we didn't know about them, which is that, you know, they can be adapted to pretty easily. So I think the, the first mass market antibiotic is on, so they're discovered like ages before they're actually on the market. They're on the market in the middle of the Second World War, like broadly available. And then by 1950, there's um, evidence of resistance. Hmm. And broad resistance, it's being found in like cattle. Hmm. So um, yeah, we've definitely shaped that, right? Like, in that those you know, those, there's lots of bacteria that are gaming that system. Not only that, there's bacteria that really don't have very much to do with us at all that are picking up the same antimicrobial resistance genes because 
A, we've done a fantastic job of mass environmental dosing. You know, some of these, um, some of these uh, antibiotics that we commonly take, like tetracycline, have like environmental half-lives that go on for, you know, hundreds of years. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing is that all of these bacteria can pass, not all of them, but a number of them can pass like these genes horizontally, right? They can, they can stick what's called a sex pili out of it, their out of their membranes and plunge them into a neighboring bacteria. And it doesn't really matter who that bacteria is. And they can pass these genes in usually in a circular genome called a small circular genome called a plasmid over. And then those genes may be incorporated or kicked out. Who knows? But like, you know, there are really, that has really important implications when it comes to like, when it comes to disease. So, these are all things that have existed for, for millions to billions of years, and we've found out about them because we started seeing resistance occurring. Hmm. So, yeah, there, that's one thing we've, we've definitely changed. In terms of things like COVID, like coronaviruses, um, I think that's really hard to Did say. You call, do you call them COVIDs? I call them COVIDs. Yeah, because the, the short <laughs> form, right, is COV. So if, yeah. you, if you look, that's why I call them. Yeah, I just call them Kobe's. And, and really, you have a cute name for them. <laughs> that's really sweet. They're terrifying, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> it's like ba- a balances out those stress levels a little yeah. bit. Well, I mean, there's a large number of them that aren't terrifying. You mm. know, we, all of us have had a coronavirus of one kind or another before now. Many of them um, aren't pathogens for humans, right? Yeah. So there's 46 species in total that are known. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the vast majority of them are not human pathogens. Mm. Most of them, though, are living in bats, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Good portion of them. Mm. Uh, uh, but in terms of like stuff like that, what I was going to say is that uh, our behavior has—I mean—and this is known from lots of different things, right? Our behavior is why influenza circulates every year. Our behavior is why HIV exists, and you know, the coronavirus is no different. Hmm. Um. Gosh, I feel that when I emailed you, I was like, hey, could I ask you a couple questions <laughs> uh, 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 um, about vaccines? And now it's like becoming the whole episode. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is I'm apologizing to you because I know this isn't um, this isn't really your thing, but I'm I'm appreciating. Well, it's not anymore. But, I haven't done it in a really long time. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's I am always on it to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah. And right now I pay pretty close attention to what trials are coming up, but um, I don't know how to describe this, but I guess once you're a policy analyst, you kind of always are. You're mm -hmm. always looking at things from the perspective of like, how does this get approved? I I regularly read regulatory updates. I just can't help it. (laughs) But it's not what I do. I don't make vaccines. And I'm involved in anything that has to do with their approval. I'm usually... um... I'm usually pretty good ab- about protecting myself um, from like little pop up like Yahoo news stories and stuff. But I had one, I had one come up today. It something about some promising lead about plasma and antibodies or something or other. Oh yeah. So this is actually, if there's something that we talk about that could be really important, I think there's a couple of things that we should clear out of the way about coronavirus. And this sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, there's a desire for convalescent plasma, like plasma from people who have had this novel coronavirus. And there's been some early indications that 
um, that and not you can help someone who has a severe infection by giving them convalescent plasma. That's a that's a technique that's been used in medicine for a long time. Um, so they all when they already have it. When they already have okay. it. I see. So, but there's a whole bunch of things that we should maybe talk about that are connected to that. So I, I didn't read it. the Yahoo Steer article. The and I, I haven't read anything about convalescent plasma for maybe three or four weeks. So, um, so I might be a little bit out of date with that stuff because the it's way it's a fast this, changing world. <laughs> it changes. Yeah. So like I said, like right now I'm working pretty long hours. Um, ordinarily I try to keep my work week down to 60 and below, but, uh, yeah. And one of the reasons why is that the info changes all the time. It's constant. Yeah. But, uh, I was, I, 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 I was like tweeting. I don't check the news much. And like one day I'm like, I'm, I'm like tweeting like silly jokes about like Elon Musk or whatever. And then I get to the end of the day and, um, and I check the news and there was like, uh, the George Floyd stuff was happening and there's like a whole, um, social uprising going on while I'm like tone deaf, like tweeting, yeah, like yeah. I've been having a pretty great day. And like, oh. <laughs> like, things are awesome right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Things are moving fast. I mean, I'm hopeful fast. Yeah. I mean, it sounds terrible, but the more that we learn, I mean this broadly, and I, I mean this like as a white person broadly too, the more that I, I learn. It yeah. shouldn't take someone being murdered for me to learn something. Right. right? But, um, but it, I mean, this is a, a time for us to be trying to learn as much as we can about all of the terrible things that are, that are hurting us, right? So, well, I, uh, think, I think the coolest thing about all of this, if I can say that, is that, is that when, you, when you stress a system, whether it's the human mind or the culture or government or businesses, um, a lot of the issues come to the surface and, oh, yeah. and, uh, that, that maybe some people were already aware of, but we weren't all aware of. And now we're all getting to, uh, see firsthand some of these social issues. We're all thinking about, geez, I never really thought about supply chain issues before yeah, or where my food I comes from. I can barely <laughs> say that I never once thought about how flour gets to the grocery store before. <laughs> you know? So I think there's tremendous educational opportunities for all of us in many domains. Um, and, and so I, I sure hope that many of us are taking as much advantage of that as possible. That's why I, I I'm embracing this as much as I can. And rather than wanting it all to like, like la 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 and just be normal yeah. uh just try to take it for what it is and soak it all up i mean it's a one way of coping is to is to dig in right and yeah. so um which is i guess what sort of happened for me because as, as giggly as i might be in this interview about this kind of stuff and i'll i'll laugh about this the stress of it it's yeah. it is like there it's it's a dark time too it is because this is awful but yeah we had this conversation i want to say that we talked about this a little bit the first time which is the like pandemics change governments right pandemics change things and um and so you know something that so this is just me being kind of an infectious disease geek but one of the things i found super irritating about the coverage of covid was the there's a couple of themes that have really bothered me. And, and the first is that uh, notions that like all this clotting in the microvasculature, the tiny, tiny arteries and veins is novel. That's not novel. That's something that we see in sepsis all the time. That's a common symptom of sepsis. COVID often causes sepsis. 
Sorry, go ahead. Why don't you talk about sepsis a little bit? Yeah, sure. Because that's it, what you do. And I yeah. remember you talking about it last time. <laughs> and my eye is going like, oh, my God. No, it's horrifying. So, um, so, so let's dig in. Uh, so sepsis is uh, it's a profound immune response that is sparked by uh, an infection of sufficient severity. It, it's a way of thinking about it is that it's a very, very severe infection. It doesn't particularly matter. That's uh, that's kind of the nerdiest way to say something yeah. really horrifying, too. Right, what was yeah. that? A, a, an infection of what is sufficient it? Sufficient severity. Sufficient severity. Yeah, that gives me a lot of space oh, rati in, in terms of, for error, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reason why I put it that way. So it's a, an infection of sufficient severity that it sparks a profound immune response. Now, that response, how we think about it, has been argued about. Um, there are a, a number of, of people who think that maybe that response is in. Uh, is in step with how bad the infection is. And, but there's also this broader uh, group of people who believe that the response itself is this massive pathological, pathological response. And there's people that think about this in between. But regardless, what we know is that the immune system starts to take, like, is really engaged and, um, and that this leads to bystander what we call bystander tissue damage meaning so the target might be the pathogen but the response that the immune system is undertaking to take that pathogen out is big and so there's lots of damage that happens to non-target like items like vasculature and things like that mm -hmm. so anyway clotting is a really important antimicrobial mechanism it clotting is extremely important for capturing things that aren't supposed to be in you or trying to stop things from getting into you. And in severe infections, we often see lots and lots and lots of clotting. Mm -hmm. So that symptom is not unique to, mm -hmm. to COVID. It's something that's seen in lots of different things. And one thing about sepsis that I want to be clear about is that the pathogen, it can be caused by any number of pathogens. It can be caused by bacteria, fungus, influenza, represents about 30% of the identified cases every year. It's also very hard to diagnose. That's another thing. Um, People come into the ER, and if they're really far along, they'll, they might get a positive diagnosis, but sometimes they get sent home. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and it's fast acting and, and kills people quickly. Um, the respiratory problems associated with COVID, the, the, the ones that require ventilation like ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, at, on non-terrible, horrifying pandemic years, um, about 50% of the cases of ARDS that come in to a, a, a hospital annually are caused by sepsis. It's a lot of this stuff is all stuff that we already knew. Um, in terms of who's being affected, we've had 30 years of data that show that minoritized populations tend to be most affected by sepsis. In fact, the classic, uh, the classic um, person who is likely to acquire and die of sepsis is African-American men living in urban centers. And it's been long assumed that that's because of inadequate access to care in one form or another. So we know all of this information. It's been known for a long time. And 750,000 people in the U.S. Ha get sepsis every single year. Mm. So this is, it's not like we haven't, it's not this rare thing. It's exceptionally common. And so we've had this information. We all, it's been known. What a good thing that's coming out of COVID is that now 
everybody has to digest this, right? Mm -hmm. It's no, it's being, it's so, it's attracting so much attention that people really have to contend with it. And why those populations end up with sepsis is, is complex, mm -hmm. but every investigation that I've ever read that looks into some sort of intrinsic genomic reason, like it's in their genes, man, is yeah. not, it's not a genetic phenomenon. It, it's never, it's never been, it, no one has ever found a target in the genome that, as, that I've read in any case uh, that has segregated along identity lines. It's, it, it's something that's the outcome of, of being, um, of having, of be, being a population that's more likely to have these comorbidities and these comorbidities are often environmentally caused. Yeah. I, I mean, this was this was the first thought that occurred to me when the protests started that I had, and this might be an uncomfortable conversation, but this is this is a good time for uncomfortable conversations. My first thought, as someone who is was like on one side of things, very excited as someone who like loves raging against the machine, and <laughs> and, and um, but also. Um, spent months talking with um, scientists and infectious disease people about <laughs> scaring the crap out of me about COVID. I right. was like, well, I know this virus doesn't discriminate, but I know that our healthcare system and our housing system and everything does. And, and I know minority groups are going to be the most vulnerable, if, especially if you're if you're in a group of people that say are less likely to have a separate bedroom to quarantine someone if they do get sick and, and things like that. And, and I thought of like, that was my first thought as soon as all, and I, I don't think that this, this thought was lost on a lot of people of what happens when you start putting a bunch of people, um, uh, together and, and, you know, plenty of white people protesting too, obviously. Um, and, but what, what happens even if they i mean it was a grand experiment even if people are seemingly wearing um they're masks wearing masks and, yeah quite so, a bit. i mean i think one of the interesting things right now is that we're seeing a huge uptick in cases that are stemming very clearly mapping to the july 1 july 4th holidays that just happened in north america yeah. and um and additionally I, I don't know if this is true i meant to look at the quebec numbers there's a a, a holiday in quebec um on June 24th, St. John Baptiste mm. Day, that is also a, a prime uh, time for gathering and things like that. We're seeing upticks from that. We're not seeing upticks from, from and there's been a lot of analysis around this. We're not seeing upticks stemming from the Black Lives Matters protests. I mean, that's shocking to me just in terms of my understanding was that masks don't mean you can stand right next to somebody. Right. They're, they're lowering the spread right, they of don't. trouble. They certainly don't. Um, but it's, but there's a difference between how these events are happening, right? Yeah. So like a backyard barbecue, if everybody's back in the backyard, sure, but people go in and use the washroom, right? At, at these protests, people are not indoors, they're outdoors. So yeah. that automatically lowers the threat of acquiring something from an aerosol, which is tiny. Uh, the masks are supposed to generally catch droplets, which are, I can't remember the exact size now. I used to know this off the top of my head. 
uh, but are substantially <laughs> larger. So it's just stuff that you, you know. You don't know the droplet size? Come on. The, it's like five, less than five <laughs> nanometers, more than five nanometers. I thought I was interviewing a professional here. Yeah, How do you know, not right? know Scientists, droplets. am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's, uh, and then aerosols are less than five nanometers. And then the virus itself is like 0.125 nanometers, I want to say. And anyway, it's considerably smaller than an aerosol. So, um, so the masks, no, they don't. And especially, especially cotton masks don't stop um, virus, but virus is being carried around in liquid. And so it'll stop it if it's in liquid, which it is most of the time. The other thing too, is that like, it's easy. I think that in social gatherings, you know, it's easy to not be as safe. Mm-hmm. You can let your guard down. Um, you know, protesting requires a bunch of, even in normal times requires a bunch of safety mechanisms be in place, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, a lot of people write down their phone numbers on their arms in advance. If they're pregnant, they write that down, you know, like, here and they're, and they're not protesting science. So it's, uh, they're not protesting, like washing their hands and, right, and yeah. like well, and all so these other things that other people might not be taking seriously that, right. that are going like, I'm celebrating the 4th of July, damn it, because this thing's a hoax. Those people might be more likely to not wash their hands after using. The other thing, too, is that where I am, so, um, and I think that this might be true of a lot of places, I'm kind of right now in this rural college town where we haven't. uh, No, I'm in Illinois, so I'm in, like, central Illinois. Okay. Um, So where we haven't been hit too hard as far as we know, right? We haven't had an overwhelmed ICU. Things have been handled pretty well. Our case number for identified cases is pretty low. And under those circumstances, having been isolating a long time, it's easy to convince yourself that it's not that dangerous. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, and nobody want, I mean, I don't, I don't know that any of the gatherings where this stuff is happening, I think there's maybe... Some, a lot of it's going to be by accident. I think some of it also is like skewed risk perception, mm. like rationalizing, for example, like the original information that came out about this virus right from the original cohorts was that it's killing people that are over this age, right? So mm. the people who are most likely to die are going to be over the age of 65. There was weird interpretations of information around whether or not children could even get it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, or how responsible they were going to be for like trafficking it from one person to another. And I think those early messages kind of held and it's easy if you're sick of being at home to rationalize, okay, well, it's not gonna be that big of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's my yeah. understanding that that there's no evidence that any any single human is less um, susceptible to getting it. It's, it's just what happens after you get it, where there's the individual differences. Right. So it's definitely progressing in in people differently. I haven't seen any information suggesting resistance period, like meaning that you get exposed and you cannot catch it. Mm -hmm. I've not seen anything. In fact, I, I've been digging through a lot of coronavirus literature and I haven't seen anything on resistance and it, it could be that I'm just missing it because there's, you know, there's a lot, but um, I haven't seen anything on it. So I, yeah, it's an issue of what happens after the fact. And there's, I mean, that's important too. How much you get when you are first infected probably determines quite strongly how you progress. Mm. So even if you were going to think about 
people who are immunosenescing, meaning that their immune system is aging and therefore is regulating differently. You, there's strange things that happen to you after the age of 55 or 60 where like you don't produce T cells in quite the same way. Um, weird stuff. Anyway, it's not uncommon, to, for example, for people over the age of 60 to not readily develop a fever when they're infected with something that would easily develop a fever and like a, or lead to the development of a fever in a 20-year-old person. Um, so there's this issue of progression and what symptoms show up. And then there's just an issue of whether or not someone recognizes they're sick as a result, right? So there's all these things that play into it. I haven't seen any evidence of resistance. What I have seen from the beginning is misconceptions around treating this virus as if it's somehow inherently special compared to every other coronavirus we know about. And other coronaviruses transit between children all the time. Mm-hmm. If, if they didn't, yeah. then pe- people with kids in daycare would be leading much easier lives. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that's just how it is. They always have um, a the snotty nose. Think, the other thing, yeah, exactly. And this, is what, this brings me to the point that I wanted to make around antibodies uh, a little while ago, and I think it's yeah. really, really important. The information that we have right now on SARS, which is the 2003-2004, well, technically 2002 to 2004 um, coronavirus that had, like, led to outbreaks in China and in Toronto um, and a couple of other places. Uh, I shouldn't say a couple. It actually is quite a few other places. Like I think it's like 26 countries. But the point is, it was a coronavirus and it was called SARS. Um, that's the most closely related thing to SARS-CoV-2 that we, that we know of that, that's in humans. That whole family of viruses, which falls under beta coronaviruses, and there's a, a number of them, including Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and, and virus and a couple of others. The antibodies that you raise up against these things, the specific group of viruses, at least for SARS and... Um, Firmers drop off precipitously after two years. So that means, that implies that the B cell population, that just to be clear, B cells are what make antibodies, um, that the B cell population that recognized this virus when you were infected and then made memory cells to stick around, those memory cells are either malfunctioning or dying off. Mm-hmm. They die off by year three, they're gone. You cannot find antibodies after year three. So for everyone who's getting infected right now, it's like, I've got it, I'm good for life. Probably not. It's a slowly mutating virus and the antibodies die off really, really fast. Well, that, that, I mean, there's there's definitely, a that's kind of good news if it's a slow mutating virus though, right? In terms of the other side of, in terms of, like making a vaccine for yeah so that's that's so that's a relative term to be clear um i'm thinking about it in terms of things like hiv it's very very slow uh Mm. we'll have a better sense of how quickly it's changing we have a pretty nice sense right now but we'll have a better sense as years go out yeah i think so i think um there's a bunch of different vaccines that are going to trial right now um and they use a bunch of different techniques to get around this issue so the first is there's, I was just checking out today. Um, so just so if everybody wants to feel a little bit better about this, I can't say how many are vaccine trials, but the number for what has been registered as a clinical trial in the U.S. and in 216 other countries is something like, it's over 300,000. It's 300,045, 345,278. 
as of today. That, that's the number of what? Clinical studies that are underway. And that means wow. clinical interventions. So like a vaccine, let's try to save this person who's in distress, stuff like that. In some cases, they're looking just at molecules to put into vaccines. But yeah, 345. And that's all stuff that has been like the vast majority of that is stuff that has been done and achieved in the last four or five months. Hmm. So in any case, um, there's a lot. Some of those are vaccines and the models for these are um, very. So this issue about whether or not it's going to mutate substantially over time makes things like valent vaccines where you're looking at, at protein chunks um, and you're putting those into somebody and then they raise up a response against it and then you're protected. Uh, that makes those potentially a little bit risky. However, there's every reason also to think based on what we knew even a couple of months ago that there are good targets on the outside of this virus that could you could use for this kind of vaccine. And so there's a bunch of those that are under consideration. Um, for that kind of vaccine, if it does, if it is successful, then I would think, I don't know, but I would think that you might still face the same issue of antibody titer drop-off. So you'd be looking at a regular vaccine schedule that's mm. happening every couple of years, maybe. It depends on how, um, I can't, you really can't say anything until you have like the trial results and you know, but that based on what we know so far, um, I think that that might be the case. Then there's a couple of others where there's, so one of the more complicated ones, um, there's a couple that look like this and Moderna, which has gotten a lot of attention is proposing something similar where you make human cells make the RNA of the virus. And then that necessitates that the, then it's being made inside of you and the immune system sees it and says, Hey, this is a problem. And therefore um, it sparks a response. And I think the idea is that that would be constitutive, meaning like it would go on forever. And so one of the ones I was looking at involved using, so it's very funny the way they worded it is an efficient lentiviral vac vector, which probably means an HIV-like virus that they've chopped the bad parts out of. Mm -hmm. And then they put this code in for this virus, some section of this virus. And then what you do is you make part of, continually make this virus protein, presumably to the end of your days, and your immune system keeps seeing it. Hmm. And therefore, it keeps making memory against it. Hmm. I think that's the mechanism. Anyway, it's very complicated. There's a lot of them anyway. When someone gets it now, my understanding is, is that there's, been cases where people have gotten COVID-19 and not produced antibodies? Yeah, I'm a little bit more out of date with that um, than uh, I should be. I, I've heard a couple of different things that I haven't been able to chase down. And one is that okay. they don't, there is maybe a less than lustrous antibody response. Uh, another that I've heard is people getting repeatedly reinfected in short order. Um, that's, that's the scariest possibility, right? Right. So what we have to remember is that when people are looking at these things, they're relying also on tests, sensitivity of tests and timing and appropriate sampling. 
And so um, when the first stories came out about this, uh, they were out of China and the, the authors themselves had concluded that this probably had to do with people, either the sensitivity of the test or people actually having had it and the test not having revealed it for some reason or another, that it wasn't sampled correctly or that these were people who were really positive the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the antibody response, um, it's harder for me to comment on that because I haven't read that much about That's okay. that. But I, I would say that every single time you read about this, you have to keep in mind that these are all newly developed technologies. Mm-hmm. Some of them are well-worn. Like the test itself is a well-worn technology. It's been around for a long time. They just changed small pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also true technically of antibody testing, but it's, it's important to keep in mind that there, there can be errors and the way, so one of the things that that's really important, I think also to, to emphasize is that the major publishers for, um, for like journals, for academic journals have, have recently come to an agreement that, uh, or at least a number of them have, that you have to deposit your paper that you're going to submit to them in a public archive first before it's peer reviewed. So it goes to a place like BioArchive or MedArchive. Um, and what that means is that a lot of stuff that hasn't been frisked, even though it's probably very high quality work, it hasn't been frisked and it's sitting by other scientists and it's sitting publicly available. And the, the reason for this was to say like, hey, everybody who's discovering information about this should have it available to them so we can come to a solution as quickly as possible. But what that means is that often then it gets picked up and carried uh, to the public without context uh, mm-hmm. that other people, like other scientists, could bring to the to the table. And so, um, I see. So I think that some of these stories around infection and reinfection, I always try to think about that, even though I yeah. can't necessarily get on it. <laughs> so yeah, um, well, because there's that, and then and then there's the idea of I, I think the other big important one seems to be what what are the long-term impacts uh if you get you know some people recover and they're uh, maybe a hundred percent afterwards or uh or, or are there long-term yeah so lung problems other issues that that i mean obviously we won't know for a while anyway but is do you have a do you have a sense do you want to do you want to hear something really depressing yeah okay so uh so since our last conversation, remember our last I'm, conversation? I'm glad that the world's finally caught up to the depression that I've felt my entire... Right. Uh, the, the world's caught up, uh, caught up to how I've felt for 30 years. Right, the, the overwhelming <laughs> existential dread. I, I yes. totally get that. I feel it. I do. Uh, I feel like also finally the world is caught up to my overwhelming paranoia about my group. So we're, we're, we're hearing good company. Uh, we last spoke, I want to say, maybe two or three weeks after the shutdown in Illinois, which would have been pretty close to the shutdown in Wisconsin. I, you were like, so, you know, what's going on next month? And I was like, oh, no, man, this is, this is a year-long thing. I remember. I lab at the beginning of March. And this is, this I, is- I didn't book a single gig after talking <laughs> to you. I, I, I've, and I've been offered gigs Um, and they're doing another, they're doing socially distanced comedy clubs. Worst idea. There's Uh, already, there's already been, um, there's already been someone, uh, fainted on stage. 
um, oh. and uh, and p- tested positive afterwards. So then they had to like test everyone in the showroom. And oh, then there's God. been two um, very very recently two um, uh, two um, fairly like well known, fairly popular um, comics with big podcasts that have been anti mask, anti everything, uh, like oh, went touring. Wow them and and they were doing meet and greets after the show taking pictures with people and everything which even if the club itself was distancing that eliminates the whole point of distancing they and their two people that they brought with them um all got it one one of them was a cancer survivor who got in rough shape from it and so i i don't know how many people in the showroom ended up getting it I know four people that were in that showroom and 100% of them have, uh, have gotten it. And so it's just, uh, that's awful. Yeah. And that's really awful. Yeah. So I, I've, I've been, I've been trying, I've been trying to be like, what are we doing? First off, it'd be like a socially distanced jazz room or something like that would be like a really cool experience. Yeah. Social- yeah. Socially distanced comedy just simply doesn't is that's like the list of things that you need to do to make it safe is the same list of worst ideas for a comedy show. And so right. it, yeah. it, it gets into the why bother sort of um, people need to see social category. cues, right? Like laughter <laughs> is a literally a contagious thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so here's my depressing yeah. revelation. It's uh, the context for this is based somewhat in the antibody tighter discussion that we just had and then also um so i think a vaccine is going to come to market sooner rather than later i actually think the vaccine is going to come to market on the schedule that we talked about the first time which is the reason why i said things were going to be shut down in a year for a year i said that i thought that at that time that it would be reasonable to expect that a, a vaccine will be on the market sometime between january and february the issue there are several issues you want to have a lot of vaccines the the second like a lot of different kinds at least if you have one approved, you want lots of different people making it. There has to be a lead up time for distribution. So for the flu vaccine every year, there's a three or four month lead up. So you would expect that too. And then the first people who are going to get it are going to people that are, are going to be the people that are most likely to be exposed and are in essential positions. So there's all of that. So then you're looking at a distribution lead time, three, four months. There's issues around costs and post-market trading and, so I would expect that people like you and me, if it comes to market in January, probably won't get it until June. Now, here's what, the what if I get a better? What if I get like a bigger following and I'm more famous? By You're more famous and more essential. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe. But it may, maybe it's earlier than that. I don't know. But I'm just like sitting right now thinking it out. Let's say the worst case scenario is that it's if it is approved and ready to go and hitting the market in January, February, that the rest of us are getting it over the spring and summer. Um, okay, so if that's the case, the virus itself, so the, the R naught values, meaning the number of people that you're likely to pass it to, um, who will actually acquire it, differ by location and, and things like that. Uh, but they've never been less than exponential, meaning that it's always been, a, it's, it's always been calculated that one person can pass it to, will pass it to at least two on average. Um, the higher end of that is 
estimates up near 6.5 to 7 people that one person can will on average pass it to 6.5 to 7 people. And like I said, it, it depends on where you are. There's a lot of like social factors that go into this, mm-hmm. but it's never been less than exponential. At an exponential, now I'm, I have to, I'm taking a page from someone else's research, so I don't specifically do this. Mm-hmm. But at, my understanding is that at an exponential rate of transmission, you need high levels of herd immunity. Mm. So, and I mean high, like 60 to 70%. And then if it's as high as 6.5 to have effective herd immunity, you need to have much higher than that. That could be as high as 80 to 90. So, you know, the work that was talking about this and, and throwing these numbers around was published in, in April. Um, it could be that views have changed. I haven't seen anything that suggests that the view has changed, but that's really high. So for worldwide, you'd have to have a vaccination program that hits all of, like hits that many people. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to maybe if it, if antibody titers drop as we think they do, you're going to have to come back within 18 months and do it again. So it's presenting a bunch of challenges potentially. Now that said, we don't have antibody information on this COVID yet, right? So maybe among coronavirus, among beta coronaviruses, it lasts longer. Like maybe our B cell responses, we're going to find out that they're that they're longer running and that the antibody tigers don't drop off. If it's anything like SARS or MERS and, and a number of others, then they will. And so, um, but like I said, it's possible it's not. But in the worst possible case scenario, I think that we're looking at strange modifications for maybe three years. Mm. Um, so that's my depressing scenario. And then you asked about what's happening health-wise. So given all of that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. But even if it's not, in what we call posse symptomatic, so people who have like low symptoms, they often get called asymptomatic. Um, so people who are either thrown into one of those two categories where they don't know that they have an infection or they have mild infections, there's already evidence that they have longer term issues. So um, at least within a couple of months have longer term issues. So for example, within a couple of months. Yeah. So within the months that we've had to look at this, there's already people who show up who are posse symptomatic or lowly symptomatic. And when x-rays are taken of their chest, they have those same, same evidence of, of viral pneumonia. So they're not expressing symptoms the way that you would expect, but they have viral pneumonia uh, and they test positive for COVID-19. So the, it's uh, an x-ray um, image that's called a ground glass opacity. It, it's got a very, it's a very specific kind of image. Um, so that has implications for what happens in the years out. We know uh, there's recent reports around uh, potential problems with neurological function, even in in mild to moderate cases. I should probably get something else out of the way real quick. (laughs) So just to be clear, so SARS-CoV-19 as a severe infection is severe pneumonia requiring ventilation, meaning you have to be on a ventilator. And if you're on a ventilator, most of the time that means that you've developed ARDS which is acute respiratory stress syndrome. Uh, syndrome. That condition 
is uh, caused usually by some kind of clotting or inflammation that leads to um, like plasma leaking into the lungs. So fluid comes into the lungs from the blood supply. That fluid, the plasma, contains a bunch of factors, immune factors that go ahead and start knocking out um, what's called surfactant in the alveoli. Surfactant works kind of like the, the grease of the alveoli. It's, a, it's really important for the expansion of these air sacs in the lungs and then their, their deflation. And so in the absence of the surfactant and with all this this liquid coming in, the air sacs have problems doing what's called recruitment and de-recruitment, de meaning that they start to slow in terms of how quickly they open and how well they close. So this, this is why it's really depressing. So, so, this, <laughs> so on top of that, also there's these other immune factors that are coming in from the blood that are sitting in the lungs too. What this does in combination is two things. It means that the reason why you're on the ventilation is because you need to have more pressure and more time to open the air sacs in the lungs. Um, and that's why things need to be ventilated. But because all this other stuff is in there and the process of the ventilation itself is also dangerous, you can do damage to the lungs doing it. What often happens after ARDS resolves, if you survive it, is people develop lung fibrosis. All this damage has to be repaired. And in the speed of repair, a lot of this crap that came in with the plasma is just woven right into the lung tissue. And so there's this longer term issues around breathing. But people who develop ARDS are also five years out more likely to have neurological issues. Having severe infections often leads to muscle wasting at the time. That muscle wasting often goes on much longer than that um, for a host of reasons. There's post-traumatic stress disorder from simply just having it. People who develop sepsis, period, are more likely to die of any cause mortality in the next 12 months. So there's that on the severe end of things. Then there's the next category down is mild pneumonia, which is a huge category because for anybody who's had pneumonia, they know that doesn't require ventilation. <laughs> they know that it's pretty serious. It could require su oxygen supplementation and you would still be called mild pneumonia in the current way that COVID-19 cases are broken out. Then there's mild which is anything that's not mild pneumonia. And then there's asymptomatic, posse-symptomatic, which is something where you may not necessarily know that you have the condition. And that's a really tricky category because there's no cohesive set of diagnostic cues for anything other than the like most severe cases, like the you know mild pneumonia through to severe pneumonia that you have this in the first place, other than say like a positive test. So there's these big, big categories that people get lumped into. And all of them, even if it were regular run-of-the-mill pneumonia, you would expect to have longer-term ramifications around breathing difficulties, likelihood of getting another infection down the road. The troubling thing about these uncoordinated symptoms that are mild is that now we're getting evidence that there are longer-term like term issues, like ground glass, glass opacities imply that there could be issues around breathing that'll happen later on. Um, just because th you know that they have viral pneumonia and you would expect that. People lose their sense of smell. There's all this microvasculature issues. 
Um, so the recently that's, I've, that's those, that's those, uh, those, those bros. These one of them is like an ex MMA fighter. So they're like a couple tough guys that were anti-maskers. Their poor friend that was the cancer survivor. They're already like, yeah, he's lost his sense of smell and taste. And like, oh, yeah. And that's like, so one of the things we know about coronaviruses <laughs> is like some other viruses, a number of them are known to jump the olfactory bulb. They're up in the nose anyway. And the olfactory bulb has a bunch of adaptations to prevent this from happening. But what is that thing from Jurassic Park? Life finds a way. <laughs> Find a way. The CNS yeah. is a great place to live, man. If you can get in there, you're looking at down-regulated immunity and just so many cells that you can use. And so, um, so we know that they jump in. And we know that they can also spark cell death. So there's reasons to think that there might be long-term neurological things. And recently this week, news broke that there are people who are suffering from like clumsiness. Now, like I said, some of that might be from clotting, right? So they might, it could be that people are suffering infarctions, but it also might be like neuronal cell death that's stemming just from the infection itself. Nobody knows. The thing that I find most troubling about this is that we might be looking at a really big shift in what health in worldwide, but in the United States looks like, right? That people will have these sort of longer term things. So one of the projects that I'm working on is trying to figure out what those, what those are. Like, so um, one of many that I've been pulled in on is looking at like, okay, this person presented as asymptomatic. What does health look like for them four years from now? So I don't know. We'll see. <sighs> yeah. That was depressing. And you know what? No, the thing it's is? Fast, just... You know what the most depressing thing is, is that I'm like keeping you way over your time. Cause I want to talk to you for like two more hours about oh, this. I know, I'm you you want to, you want to do this again sometime soon? Yeah let's do because certainly the situation is going to change i mean it it changed even today i'm sure i'm just behind by a couple of hours yeah <laughs> yeah on some topics i'm deeply behind so um me so yeah too. sure let's let's do it again i just really quickly want to say that um no it, it, but i i have i have at least 20 minutes i i just i'm just being mindful of your time oh um, okay. yeah that's 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 totally fine um this apocalyptic scenario that I've just sort of drawn out, you know, a lot of it's based on information that we have about other coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. the, the bottom line is we only know what we know and what we know is not as much as we need to know. And so mm -hmm. this is my impression right now. When you and I spoke in April, uh, March, when you and I spoke in March, my impression was different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was, my impression was this is going to be a year there are easy targets for this vaccine. There are, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, if a valent vaccine will work, but you know, yeah. So my impression is different. And if we talk again, like three, four months from now, it's going to be really different. So again. your, your impression is worse than when we originally talked. More complex. M more, <laughs> more complex. Yeah. You're what I, what I want to emphasize is that there's a lot of research happening. Everybody, like I don't, I didn't, wasn't studying coronaviruses before now. The last time that I dealt with the coronavirus was in 2003 during the SARS uh, epidemic. And when that happened, I, uh, someone came back from some high-level meeting and mentioned to me it's a coronavirus. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Don't those cause colds? And that was like, it was stunning to think that 
this kind of virus would do something so terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I went on to study other things. I mainly poke at plague all day. But everybody who has any expertise in infectious disease or even just infections or even, I don't know, like everybody has some level of expertise that's important here. You know, short order cooks have that expertise that's extremely important here in terms of like providing food to people and and what sort of safety things need to be undertaken. And um, I'm getting yanked into this because there's a need for bodies. And so, you know, everybody's throwing be- some weight behind it mm-hmm. that I know of. So I, I would say that like things are moving and anytime we get new information, that's good. So keep hope because it's, it's not necessarily as dire as I just drew it out. I, I just yeah. wanted to make clear that there are these challenges. Cause I mean, it's just like a whole conversation of, of, um, you know, everyone's going to be like, well, what do we have to do? We got to go back to work. I guess we're all just going to get it. It's like a lot of the sentiment right now of just like, well, we can't right. shut down school forever. Uh, we, we need no. health care, everything else. And so true. But I mean, like what we just talked about here where you were talking about, like how comedy clubs have to run, like what's the yeah. the service to comedy versus like what's safe for people. Yeah, that stuff that like, so, I mean, everyone could write a risk policy. Every yeah. single person could write a risk policy based on their expertise of what they do. Yeah. And so, you know, that's good. It's just an yeah. issue of people getting the right information. And one of the things, I mean, I'm not trying to be in denial of the fact that there are a lot of people in the country that are willingly throwing off recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more that I think if we work to educate as many people as possible, then those people will become the minority. Nobody yeah. wants this. Yeah, right. I I mean, do you think that there's possibilities in the future of having a more understand in, instead of a instead of a broad because uh, uh, as things are spiking again, I see kind of a nationwide lockdown. Everyone kind of um, maybe going back to the lockdown that we had rather than, you know, in an ideal situation, we would have essential workers and then figure, put policies in place that we can expand what we consider essential workers and then have enough policies and enough precautions. And now we've adapted and we're all wearing masks, hooray. And then we have service industries to like that serve essential workers first for their mental health and like slowly and cautiously expand things as we know more and we have better practices in place and if if people aren't because part of the i mean i just had i had a socially distanced fourth of july with a few people one of them being a aunt of mine who who was like well they shut everything down and then nothing happened because this wasn't anything and it's like no we wish nothing happened right if we would have shut that that would have been the point right we could we could look like canada (laughs) right we could we could look like other nations that actually did this and and my understanding is is that more people than projected in the u.s actually did follow um stay-at-home policies and that's why lowers uh, numbers were lower than some people were first projecting that they they would be um and and so, so anyway, wouldn't if we're talking about something that might be three years, um, 
would there be something in place where we're looking at area by area and you're having like some sort of algorithm developed based on number of ICU beds available, number of respirators, number, how well equipped an area is right. based against population density. And so obviously all the metro areas are going to be, uh, you, you know, potential epicenters but what happens when you're in a city of 40,000 people what happens when you're in right. a town of 600 people how much do you have to shut down you know right do i see there being national coordination uh well we had a response team that was let go in 2018 yeah so i think if you want to see national coordination you need to see a bigger change yeah i uh, my fabric mask uh, i have a couple of fabric masks but the one i wear most often just says vote yeah on it. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't not yeah. to dismiss the fact that there's been efforts to ensure that certain people don't vote but um, oh yeah I, right so all, all of that stuff aside i mean if you want you want to see the change you want to see, you're going to have to put people in charge that are going to do it. Yeah. One thing I would also argue is that if you really want a nationally coordinated response, you need to make healthcare accessible to people. The way that this ended up, the way this pandemic response ended up working it was with very little national guidance. And so, um, and so there's, you know, state governments have had to hustle in a way that they wouldn't have had to and like, for example, the, the testing in my town was set up and run by the university. And it wasn't even like the university did it. It was like five scientists got together and like, do you have the appropriate equipment for this? Yeah, I've got some. Do you have some of these plastic trays? Yeah, I have some. And they went over to the hospital and I'm like, here it is. Here's what you need. And we'll make the um, viral transfer media for you mm -hmm. in this lab of ours over here if we can get the supplies. Like that's how it was done. And um and, you know, and so, and members of the junior faculty at my university have been the people who have been really important in guiding the state's response. And that's, that's great. Um, but in an ideal scenario, you have national leadership that tells the state governments what they need to do. And the state listens and says, okay, you know what, this is a huge pandemic. This is a real problem. And we're going to follow the recommendations of experts. They don't have to go, you know, rustling bushes or have people rush to them and say, let me help you. Like that's, so that's the first thing you need is a coordinated national response. If you want to coordinate a national response, you're gonna to have to vote for one. The second thing I would say is that um, access to care, I'm repeating myself, access to care. Honestly, the bigger issue I think overall is that you're seeing people die in an uneven clip in, in unfair ways because you don't have a national healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Well, technically you do, I guess, right? You've got Medicare and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. But honestly, if you want that, which characterizes a lot of the other countries that have been more successful, um, and I'll say something else about national healthcare systems. They come with an attitude of national cooperation. Mm. So that's a nice side benefit if you want to crush a curve. Right. So if you want that, you're gonna to have to vote for it too. I'm not sure that that's on the table, but you know, you want it, put the people in charge that you want handling this thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's at every level. You know, the counties have, the counties have to take their, um, 
have to have to accept the money that the state gives them and they have to accept the decisions that the state makes. So, you know, in some places, the surveillance has been taken out of the county's hands. They're just getting reports from the state and it's being managed entirely by the state. In other cases, you want to get to, you know, minoritized populations, you're going to need the counties to have the power to go in and, and set up testing in regions that are, you know, have poor access. So, you know, this means voting at like every level. You guys have these epic ballots. I, these, these are the things that need to be filled out to make change. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just wish there was like, uh, that, like I would much rather, for all of people's fear of like the singularity or the Terminator taking over, I would much rather have an algorithm to look at like, here's um, here's your area and here's, here's who's at risk right now, rather than... Uh, what policy are we going to have? Well, is my governor red or blue? Because that determines whether I never go outside again or if it's spring break in Myrtle Beach or whatever. For reasons that I think we all know, the pandemic's politicized. Right? Yeah. Even the flu season every year is politicized. So yeah. um, not as much, clearly, but like it is. And so I... I think if you want an algorithm that's using like great minds and is being managed nationally and helping states locally, it, you can't not have people in charge that are not going to dismiss large sections of the CDC, right? Mm -hmm. I've used the word not in there a lot. You need somebody who's going to preserve pandemic response teams in the CDC. Yeah. That's the branch of government that's responsible for this. Like we're all listening to Anthony Fauci, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's, you know, but, Anthony Fauci's job is to manage research funds out of the NI, out of like NIAID at the NIH, out of the, the National Institute for Infectious Disease or Allergies and Infectious Disease. Um, he's certainly deep in research and he's a practicing MD. Like he's he's an incredibly knowledgeable person. But he's the lead voice here mm -hmm. when it should be the head of the CDC. Yeah. So Things are backwards and topsy turvy, and um, and Anthony Fauci has like the, such great expertise, and he's navigated so many things. Like I I trust anything he says. I believe, like I fully trust him. So I'm not saying this against Anthony Fauci. I'm saying that there should have been a large team in place at the beginning, and we don't have that because they were fired, and they were fired, and like well, not fired, but the they were disassembled. They were disassembled because the last big thing they had focused on had been Zika and Ebola, and that was seen as a foreign disease. What do we need this for? Ebola someplace else. Hmm. So if you want this, you want a nice algorithm, you're going to need, and there are, there are algorithms that are out there. I mean, people are developing things that look like this, but if you want it and you want it at a national level, you got to have people in charge that are going to like respect the science. Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific. That's a depressing story. <laughs> no, it's not. I, just, I, I mean, I'm not hopeful for that. I mean, look, I have a science podcast. I do everything I can to right. dump money I don't have into getting uh, uh, the things <laughs> you have to say and yeah. into getting it out there to people. Well, so I, I just I want to say, like, look, voting is an important thing. But yeah. for me, um, and I'm not saying vote one way or, or the other yeah. i'm saying empower your neighbors to vote if you want if you want this gone you need to empower people to vote mm -hmm. 
leadership that's going to make change, even at the smallest possible level. So if you do one thing, not you, because you're doing a great job at just getting word out and stuff. So I'm not saying you're not doing something. I'm just saying like, if anybody were to do one thing, it's to empower your neighbor to vote, whether you agree with them or not. All right. You you, hear it, you heard it here first, people. Uh, Anti-Fauci activist Jessica oh. Brinkworth is oh saying God, that I voting's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> he's, honestly, he's on my list of people. He's for ages has been on my list of people I want to meet. I was going to. Yeah. But yeah. So I don't know. Do you have a celebrity list of people you desperately want to meet? Um, I scientists are my heroes, and I kind of do. I get to talk to. I don't know. Oh, I, I had when people are like, "Who is your?" I already Robert Sapolsky was uh, was uh, was oh, my I, my was, guy. I and, definitely and, made him late for a plane once. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. And I, I have more. Uh, I, I have, I have some people that I would like to. Uh, oh, um, uh, Yuval Harari. Um, the you know the sapiens, uh, yeah. all 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 the rage. Um, yeah. I I don't necessarily agree with all of his um stuff, but I I was as someone who was like a hipster, I took his class online before any of his book before Sapiens, which is his first of three books, came out, and I was like, who the hell is this guy? Like such an incredible communicator, and then to see his books like take off, like. I haven't right. seen anything happen since like the selfish gene or, or something um, has been kind of incredible. Um, so my, my list has been revised a few times, but um, my list as it stands currently is uh, Anthony Fauci is like, has always has long been at the top of that list. I've since I was like early grad student, just thought wow, this guy's got the coolest job. In fact, um, and also because I was a little HIV obsessed as a kid, like was very, I was kind of a pill as a kid. I was really aware of really terrible things that were happening in the world and like really frustrated that I couldn't do things about them. So, uh, so he was on the news all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was, when I was a child, but I, um, oh, what was I going to say? Yeah. So he's long been on that list. And then Rafi, right. Who's a Canadian Children's singer. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I was like, is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I yeah, mean, yeah. literally, Rafi is on okay. my celebrity list. And then Robert Sapolsky was on the list, but then I met him. Yeah. Which he, he was wonderful. He was really nice, but he, therefore, he's no longer on the list. Yeah, I'm, I don't know that I have. And Peter, you know, um, another one, Peter Staley, who was um, the head of Act Out. Uh, or Act Up. Act Up. Sorry. Yeah, that was another person I really wanted to meet. I, I was, um, I think that there's uh, a really interesting intersection for activism and science that mm. like he has been at the center at for a very, very long time. And um, and he's pals with Fauci. Or Fauci. Mm. Here's what I was going to tell you about Anthony Fauci, and then I'll, I'll let you go because we're literally at the end of your time now. <laughs> so okay. um, This is but, amazing. This is the longest episode of the Here We Are podcast ever. <laughs> And, and I want to have you back on again uh, as soon as we can make it work. This is the Jessica Brinkworth chat hour. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Um, so uh, I had a student who um, was in a class, someone else's class, where they had to write some professionalization class where they had to write a letter to somebody who had 
who had the job that they wanted to have. And this kid wanted to be a public health official. And he had written to um, the head of the Champagne de Health Department, but like accidentally in Ohio and had a nice conversation, but was feeling like he hadn't really gotten the information he wanted. And I was like, well, what kind of stuff do you want to do? And he said that he wanted to be like in like one of the security investigators in and around emerging infectious diseases. And I was like, so then why are you messing around with like local government? Why don't you write to Anthony Fauci? And he was like, how do I find out how to do that? So I looked up one of um, his papers and I, you know, where he was like the author of reference, took the email, gave it to the kid and was like, write to him. So he did and Fauci responded by the end of the day Wow. And said, uh, and it was through, it was through like an administrative channel and said, write a list of questions for me and I'll answer them. So this kid wrote a list of questions and then he asked me to look at them and they were fine questions. But then I just started, I put in a question of my own. Just ask, like, yeah. And so, uh, and he answered it. Like at, he answered everything and very completely, like it would have, for me to have written this email would have taken at least an hour of my time. We got the response on a Sunday and it was this really earnest, honest response about how he had gotten a job, why he was interested, his path there, the problems that he's had in the position. Like it was such an earnest and encouraging email that I was just so completely fulfilled that my student had gotten this response back and he answered my question, which was so I which was even better. So that might be as close as I, I get in my in my career to ever having a conversation with him. But it was... Uh, it was I'm going to get to Fauci so and then I'm going to connect you to Fauci. Yeah, you get to him mission. and then we can talk. Yeah, because yeah, me fangirling here won't be awkward at all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> but anyway, he was very kind and like yeah. extremely giving of his time. And I was just, you know, if a kid had written to me on a Friday... I would not be answering those emails on a Sunday telling him the path of my career, right? Like I, yeah. I just would have had, I've been like, whatever, we'll wait till a Monday or I'll get to this, right? But he was just so on it and so kind about it. So yeah, anyway. Amazing. Yeah, well, he seems like a nice guy. Well, I got to go write a letter to John Malkovich real quick. So um, I better uh, I better get out of it here. Are you for real? Really? You're going to no, write a letter? No, I'm like, <laughs> I'm we're talking about writing letters to our well, heroes. I, know, like, your I think are very different than mine. I, I do. I, <laughs> I mean, he seems like odd, but personable um, as far as eccentrics go. So take a chance. Write a letter to Melkovich or Fauci, everybody. Um, <laughs> all right, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. Um, thank and, you for having me. Uh, I'll, I'll put your link to your work and everything in, in my I'm still figuring out my U new YouTube channel and everything. Oh, that's and, fine. I have a, I have a paper coming out. It's kind of dense. Ooh. I have a paper coming out in September. That's uh, that talks about the evolution of cell, what's called cell autonomous immunity. So it, it's, uh, it's meant for sort of a, a general educated audience, mm -hmm. but it talks about like how humans, a lot of the mechanisms that we use to fight infections are billions of years old, that they have more to do with our single cell ancestry than necessarily modern ancestry. That's so, amazing. Evolution's yeah, more my, more my uh, jam. I'm just trying to wade into the waters of, of, uh, of this 
vaccines and things going on um right now um yeah so uh awesome well i'll uh oh and i'm getting my website i'm getting a whole new website it's under construction right now but i'll i'll have it all nice and designed and navigatable for people so send me your paper um and thanks for joining me and thank you listeners for for being such a wonderful curious audience and we'll see you next episode